You're listening to Rights Up, a podcast from the Oxford Human Rights Hub. I am Simhiwe Laura-Stewart, a DPhil student at the University of Oxford. In today's episode, we speak with Rekotso Fete Chikane, an author, activist, and lecturer at the University of the Witwatersrand in Johannesburg, about the Roads Must Fall movement, in which he is one of the leading figures. This episode is part of a four-part series in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. The Oxford Human Rights Hub is an anti-racist organization and is committed to continuously working to be a better ally to Black brothers and sisters protesting for the realization of their basic rights. The horrific murder of George Floyd in the United States turned worldwide attention towards the scourge of endemic police brutality perpetrated against Black communities and communities of color. It also exposed the complicit cruelty of white indifference. These are not new issues. The struggle for racial equality has been the unforgiving work of generations. The heavy mantle of justice yet to be served has been carried across centuries by defiant peoples whose only demand is a recognition of their basic humanity. We can all do better and we can all do something in our small corners of the world to support this imperative. In this spirit, this podcast series aims to amplify the voices of Black and Brown scholars, activists, and practitioners. The Oxford Human Rights Hub also wants to acknowledge the long legacy of work that has collectively, across time and disciplines, built and bolstered the foundations of this present movement. Now is the time to listen, learn, support, and amplify. The Hub is fortunate to have a diverse community of scholarship and practice to call upon to share their experience. But conscious to avoid complacency, the Hub is also committed to asking, who is missing? It hopes to answer this question by making space for others to be seen and heard. Rechotso Fetze Chikane is the author of Breaking a Rainbow, Building a Nation, the politics behind hashtag must fall. He was one of the leading figures of the Roads Must Fall movement in South Africa. Currently, Rechotso Fetze is a lecturer at the University of the Witwatersrand and pursuing a PhD in Development, Complexity Economics, and Decoloniality. He studies public policy processes, public administration, and governing in a digital age. He is a graduate of the Master of Public Policy, MPP, program at the University of Oxford's Blavatnik School of Government as well as the University of Cape Town Public Policy and Administration, PPA, BSc program. Rechotso is the former national president of Inkulu Freehide, IFH, a nonpartisan youth movement in South Africa that works to create innovative solutions to socioeconomic problems facing the youth, deepening democracy and enhancing social cohesion. Rechotso thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So what is the Roads Must Fall movement? What are its core aims and how and when did it begin in South Africa and in Oxford? I always attribute it to a movement that happened at the university currently known as Roads. And in January of that year, they had a protest where they used the moniker Roads So White. And they used that phrasing as a way of highlighting the experiences of Black students at Rhodes University 
um, and why whiteness and white culture within the university was so pertinent. And at its very university specific, but it really stuck in the minds of a lot of people. And the previous year before Rhodes Must Fall, we had a quite a brutal year of student politics. So you kind of have this political climate where the SRC is no longer representative necessarily of black students. And, and it's an oversimplification, but if that happens, you have a breakaway group from the dominant um, political party or black political party being SASCO. And that breakaway was essentially saying SASCO focuses too much on class analysis and they don't focus enough on the experiences of black students in particular. And that breakaway becomes a Luther. And within all that fight, you have this brand new organization, not brand new in the country, but brand new to UC2, called PASMA, the Pan-African Students Movement. And they decide to rock up on campus. Right? So these all these different factions in different ways, bruised egos from the past years, fights, et cetera, et cetera. And you have this meeting that happens. So no prominent student leaders are really talking to each other, including myself. Right? There were individuals that I just wasn't talking to anymore. And then you have this event organized by what was known there as the collective um, that was titled um, Did Nelson Mandela Sell Out? You know, something along those lines. And within that meeting, for the first time in a very long time, you got a lot of student leaders who would become quite prominent in Rosemus Fall being in the same room um, for the first time in ages and all agreeing on the same idea that we all think Nelson Mandela sold out in multiple different ways, right? And we don't need to get into that discussion. But that was hugely important because when Umani, who in mainstream politics at UCT was a complete outlier, no one, like he was there, but he was part of an older generation. No one really cared about him in any particular way. But when he threw shit at the statue, that fateful day sometime in March, it set into motion a series of events over that week that brought together all these stakeholders in a formalized aspect. Right. So I hosted, in response to him throwing shit at the statue, I hosted a meeting on campus that I thought maybe like 50, 60 people would come as per usual. A thousand plus people ended up coming. In that meeting, you had a lot of black students who, exp who were explaining their experiences in different ways. And during that week, you also had black academics who, for the first time, decided to put their necks out on the line. And all these different factors all essentially converged. So after this main meeting that I organized on campus, a meeting was held afterwards to discuss how do we move forward. And that's where this idea of Roads Must Fall started gaining traction. But the ideals of Roads Must Fall only formed as we went on with our mobilization and activism. Right. So at the beginning of it, the core pillar of it was essentially black consciousness. That's really what it was. Within two weeks of our occupation, we realized that the men in the space were being ridiculous, awful human beings. Um, and a call was made to kick all men out unless they start respecting women in the space. And from that moment, you then had the pillar of black radical feminism coming. And the influence of PASMA, which had never really been on campus before, to add the notion of pan-Africanism in particular. So I like simplifying Rhodes Must Fall, as you kind of need to understand that history to eventually get to the three pillars of Rhodes Must Fall, at least at the very beginning, which was black consciousness, black radical feminism, and pan-Africanism. Um, and the, the hugely important point I would like to make before I kind of end off now is that it was extremely contested, right? Very few people held all three ideals at once. 
But those three pillars essentially guided the ideology of the movement um, at different points in time. Thank you so much for that rich um, history, Rehotsofete. I didn't know how those three pillars came to be, even though I participated in uh, Roads Must Fall in Oxford. A follow-up question might be whether you think the three core pillars that were developed and identified in South Africa carried over to the movement in Oxford. Do you do you think that they carried over? I think they did. To me. So I think Black consciousness definitely carried over uh, because Black consciousness has a ethereal ability to essentially just intoxicate many people, right? So, th- so that's very easy. But notions of, I wouldn't know how Black radical feminism would have come to Oxford or if it did, because as, as history has shown us, and I don't want to like stand as like an expert on this in any particular way, but Black radical feminism is never invited into this space, right? It's never, no one sits at the beginning and says, this is what we're going to do. Uh, ideally, that's not what happens. It's usually quite, it has to fight its way into a room. Um, so I don't know if it ever came to Oxford, but I imagine if it didn't, it would be because there were gatekeepers who would have stopped it from coming in, um, who wouldn't have wanted it to come in. The pan-Africanism, um, I can see it clearly, um, mostly because the one funny thing, and this will be my one of many controversial things I'll say today, is Rhodes was for really wasn't open to other African students at the very beginning. Um, and we and Lord Pussel was often called out by African students on campus in, in, in different platforms in different ways. Um, and then the core fear was he's not talking enough about the you you're you're sitting on your on your soapbox talking about how we should liberate the continent from Cape to Cairo but you never actually talked to the African students on campus about their experiences on campus. It became very um, South, South African-centered in many different ways. Um, but I imagine in Oxford, and then you would know much better than me, that the amount of, the need to have an African community at Oxford is one that allows people to breathe and have their lives and live their lives as freely as possible, um, to share experiences with each other. So the community of, African students at Oxford, I suspect, is a lot stronger than the community of African students at UCT in particular. And we talk about that for hours, but whether South Africans like the rest of the continent all too much. What I do know is a common theme between or common string between the two would be this notion of the black experiences on each individual campus, which would be different in different ways. Um, but I think that central connective tissue essentially is what binds that organization more so than the pillars, right? Because the pillars can or should change depending on your context, right? You shouldn't live and die on your hill of black consciousness, black radical feminism, and pan-Africanism, right? Your context should dictate the experience that you have. And therefore, if it does, the experiences should be first and foremost as the foundational pillar of your ideology. And and that's how I like seeing the connection within the two. It allows me to essentially bypass the noise and better understand our foundational ideas, essentially. Okay, so we've started to speak about what was common and what, what maybe was not as common in the two 
iterations of Roads Must Fall um, in South Africa and in Oxford. But certainly one central thing um, that united both movements was the call to remove colonial iconography and the focus on the statue of um, Cecil Rhodes at the University of Cape Town and certainly here at the University of Oxford. Why was the initial focus of the movement on the statue of Cecil Rhodes? And perhaps you can speak then about what the statue symbolizes to you. The first, little, little fun facts about the statue. So the first recorded protest against the Cecil John Rhodes statue on campus was essentially, I think it was like five years after it was erected, so 1930, whatever. Um, but it was a couple of years after it was erected, and the first students who protested against it were Afrikaans students. So Afrikaans students saw it got erected, and they were just like, what on earth is happening here? <laughs> Why would you put up the statue of this particular individual on the campus, right? So when people often talk about this, the, the statue and Rosemus Fall being this protest against it, uh, that statue has been a bone of contention at the university for over 80 years. Right? It, it's not a new issue in any particular way. And, and what it represented to a lot of people was the acceptance of the university of a particular ideology that essentially said there are those who are better than others. Fact, right? That there are those who are better than others. And because of that, I must conquer those that I am better than. Right? That, and that's what the statue represented in many different ways as a holistic idea um, from people who protested against it. At a more um, micro level, how people experienced the statue in particular was just a reminder of how, what's the word, how, how excluded you were from the space, how unwelcomed you were from the space, how you, you didn't fit the norm of this institution. Now, if the statue sat in some random corner, right? So I, I always joke around about the statue in Oriel College that I, I couldn't see it the first few times that I went there. Someone had to like point it out to me because you kind of have to look up and, and all that jazz. But the statue at UCT is hard to miss, right? When it was there. Where the majority of students who live on lower campus, which is the most densely populated area of, of, of UCT, if you walk from lower campus to upper campus, you have to walk past the statue. The vast majority of people have to walk by, past the statue. Its central position at the university as this central symmetrical line, right, meant that every single picture of the university had that statue in place. It, its position of prominence was a constant reminder to students about, you know, who you were relative to the norm in that space. And I, and I think a lot of people had issue with it um, in multiple different ways even the university itself. And I, and I give the university credit for this because a year before Rhodes Must Fall happened, the, the vice chancellor at the time, Max Price, had actually set up a process to remove the statue, right? So, so even the university itself as an institution recognized that it took a while, but it recognized itself that the, st the statue has to go at some point. Um, so I... That acknowledgement from different sectors tells the story of there's something that we all fundamentally have, not, maybe not every single individual, but we all have a fundamental belief that this statue isn't representative of the type of university we want to build or the type of country that we want to build. And the focus on the statue, I mean, I always kind of joke around about this, is that it was more of a lightning rod issue than the core issue 
um, of our movement at the time, that the Rhodes Musful statue gave us, I mean, the Rhodes statue gave us prominence, um, brought the media spotlight on us, brought the university attention on us. But most people would tell you more often than not that it really was not, was not about the statue, but that the statue was a byproduct of our activities and that we're using the statue to gain attention in order to push through particular reforms in the university, um, some of which are still in place at the university and some of which were pushed by the wayside. And I think that's why there was so much importance put on it. I absolutely appreciate that. I think part of our thinking as Roads Must Fall in Oxford this year was certainly on that idea that you brought up about colonial iconography and not the statue so much as what the statue represents. You've brought up something really interesting about this process of negotiation between students and the university. Why do you think that it's been so important for the university, whether it's the University of Cape Town or the University of Oxford, to be bought into the process of removing the statue instead of students just taking it down themselves? Yeah, so when Rhodes Must Fall started, the first response from the university, at least through our little negotiations we're having, was, well, this is happening already. Just follow the normal university processes. It's going to go through this committee meeting and then this committee meeting, and eventually it's going to get to Senate. And after Senate, it will get to council, and council will decide. And that council meeting was planned for like October or November, something like that. And I remember listening to Max Price and telling him, like, I, I, I hear you. <laughs> like, we, we hear your process. However, in two weeks' time, the statue is going to go down. Now, you can go do whatever you need to do as an institution, 100%. But we're telling you that the statue will go down in two weeks' time, whatever the time period was. Um, magically, that count, the committee meeting got moved up ahead of schedule, and they had that committee meeting. And they came back to us and said, give us a bit more time. We've moved everything up. The council meeting is now going to happen in June. I remember that happening. And again, our response was, we hear you. <laughs> However, we're going to keep disrupting, we're going to keep occupying, because we know that on this particular date, the statue will be removed. So again, go off and do your process. All of a sudden, the council meeting moved from June to March in the middle of Rhodes Must Fall and our occupation. And the, the, the importance of that and the importance of the university having to do what they call the University Transformation Forum, I think that was the name. Essentially, they called a meeting of all students on campus to come talk about their experiences. The, the importance of that is that we needed the institution, not us as students, not particular academics, not the vice chancellor, not council. We needed the institution as a whole to be able to come to the conclusion that this needs to change. And the importance of that is that it allows you to fight less fights in the future, right? You, you come up against a lot less institutional barriers to change in the long run when the institution changes its mindset and its philosophy around particular ideals that it holds as a norm. And I think that's the importance of the university and institutions making that change and students convincing these universities to make that change because it just makes a better world in the long run, at least in my opinion. 
part of what you said brings up an, an interesting question for me in terms of the difference in relationships of power and maybe subordination and control that exist between the movement in South Africa and the movement in Oxford. So you spoke about occupation, you spoke about interruption, and those definitely were not strategies that we felt we could easily employ here in Oxford because of the precarity, I think, of our situation as you know, immigrants, as visa holders, as guests, really, in the, in the space that Oxford occupies. Can you speak about why that cultural difference and that strategic difference exists in your perspective? Yeah, so you use the word guest there, which I find quite interesting. What the, the politics that had happened in the previous two years and over the previous decade, essentially, that led up to Rhodes Fall was a series of discussions, a series of events, a series of moments, et cetera, et cetera, that all essentially not culminated, but pushed up the notion of if you're a black student at UCT, you're not a guest at this university. Right, so when I first came to UCT, that was in 2011 at the time, the demographic split of the university. So remember South Africa being 80 plus percent black um, and the demographics of UCT was that 50 percent at that time, 50 percent of the student body was white. And the other 15 percent was all other people of color, including African students in general, who are also people of color. Right, So, so you can see that immediately you can say that this space is just topsy-turvy, right? If you grew up in a township and you came to UCT, you would look at that space and wonder, what country am I in? What is going on here? I've never seen this amount of white people in my entire life, as many people would say. So the efforts of the decade prior was a concerted effort to no longer feel as a guest. And once you no longer feel that your position within the university is threatened, right, so that you, you don't feel like a guest, you then become emboldened to fight for what you believe should be your home, right? And your home should be decorated, it should be built in the manner that you see fit, right? And for people who stand in the way, who have power, sometimes the biggest way to get their attention is to make them feel uncomfortable with the power that they have and how they gain that power, right? And once you achieve that, I think you're then on the right path of changing things. So different factions have said, we don't want to be like Oxford, roads must fall, and we want to just be our own roads must fall, and et cetera, et cetera. For me, the strategy and tactics are bound to differ, but the underlying principle shouldn't, which is making power feel uncomfortable with the power that it has. I think that's what matters the most. So while there is roads must fall in South Africa, and there's words must fall in Oxford, they're certainly part of a larger framework of anti-oppression, uh, decolonial movements in history and across time space. Can you speak a little more about how Roads Must Fall specifically relates to other movements um, across the world and across time space? So is there some relationship between our movement and the civil rights movement in the United States, or anti-apartheid movements, uh, perhaps the women's rights movement, just to mention a few. And if there is some connection, what similarities 
or what things do you feel that they have in common? Yeah, so a lot of us at the beginning of Rosemus Fall, when we, we started, it was uh, quite a few of us who said, well, if we're going to do this, we're going to have to study how everyone else did this. <laughs> um, and a huge amount of effort was put into doing research into different movements. So in particular, I focused on how people organized for the Arab Spring. I focused on how the student protests in Chile in particular in 2010, 2011, I think, um, had formulated their thoughts, um, how they organized um, at a grassroots level all the way to the macro level of how do you control a nationwide student protest. So there was a concerted effort to try and learn from others. There was a discussion of how do we bring in Black Lives Matter into the movement? Um, how do we bring their particular ideals and ideologies, et cetera, et cetera? And I objected to it. Um, not the objection of Black Lives Matter as an organization or as a movement, but an acknowledgement that these are different fundamental contexts that Black Lives Matter is fighting compared to the South African experience. And the underlying thing around the South African experience is that unlike Black Lives Matter, we are not a minority population within a white dominant country, right? That we are black majority in a black dominant country. The argument I was making was, if we take the stance of strategy and tactics informed by being a group fighting for your existence within a white dominant country, right? If we take on that tactic, we're then accepting defeat at the very beginning, almost, right? We're starting on the back foot. Our stance should be that we're not asking for existence. We're not demanding our existence. Our existence is here. We're a black dominant country. We are, we are who we are. And the beauty of that was that it made us realize it became, it made us more emboldened. So, so essentially that fight won out. And we brought Black Lives Matter in later on, almost like a month later or two months later. Um, and we became unified at the hip in my mind. But I think at that point, it was unified at the hip in a manner that didn't compromise our foundational beliefs, our initial strategy and tactics. So there was a huge effort to connect to different movements, but it wasn't the, the case of copy paste everything that you see. It's just an acknowledgement that we're all part of one movement that has certain variations to it, that we all need to conquer these little local fights in order for us to get onto the same page of what the global issue looks like. So my next question, and thank you so much for that response, is on human rights specifically and human rights issues. At the core of both Roads Must Fall and uh, Black Lives Matter, is a concern for human rights. So a need to remedy discrimination experienced by and injustices perpetrated against black people. How do you see human rights values being exhibited through these movements? I mean, the very notion of asking to exist, right? The, the fight for someone to say that I want to exist fully and wholly is someone essentially saying that I'm fighting for my basic human rights, right? Because that, that's really what human rights are, at least in my mind. And I think Black Lives Matter and Roads Must Fall are just different iterations of multiple different movements fighting for that human right to exist and freely exist in the world. Um, and some people might say, well, you're alive, aren't you, right? You've got like a job and 
you go to school and, and all that jazz. But if you don't feel as if you're part of a society, if you don't feel as if you're part of something greater than yourself, and not in like a philosophical sense, that you're just part of something greater than yourself, right? If you feel excluded from the mechanisms of what makes a human experience a human experience, that norm of a human experience, then you should do everything in your power to fight for it. And I think that's how both these movements understand human rights. So we were just speaking about the statue of Rhodes, um, human rights issues, and the sort of shared experience of, of trying to demand really one's humanity. In that context, what would you say to those who argue pejoratively that removing statues of colonialists or changing curricula is rewriting history? I think it's the dumbest argument in the world. <laughs> I think out of all the foolish arguments I've heard over my time on this planet, that sits right up there. So I've got two, two issues with it. If we lived 200 years ago, two, 300 years ago, um, and someone wanted to remove statues or books or anything like that, cool, I get it. Right? So I, I, I completely get it. But when you live in a world in which so much information is available at your fingertips, the ability to rewrite history in our current day and age is almost nigh on impossible, especially if the history is about white culture and whiteness and white people in particular, right? Certain things can be hidden from history, 100%, but the majority of things that are hidden from history are usually people of color's history across the world. You, you don't even have to make like a a superficial argument about this, just by sheer numbers, the amount of cultures that have been erased from history who happen to be people of color vis-a-vis -vis white people is completely disproportional, right? So we live in a day and age where it is extremely hard now to essentially rewrite history, right? You can change a narrative 100%. You can try and talk about fake news, et cetera, et cetera, right? But it, it's really hard to just change history in this day and age. So, so that's my first argument against it. My second argument is, why is it that people who've never learned about Rhodes, have never studied Rhodes, have never learned a single piece of information about the man, become some of his most ardent defenders, right? That's more fascinating for me. If, if like an old white academic or all white man or all white like funder in Oxford or in the UK complains because, you know, he used to study roads, cool, I get you. Like you've got a leg to stand on. I hear your complaints. But when a young student who's never really thought about Cecil John Rhodes or any other um, white iconography or anything of the sort of colonial symbolism, right? You've never studied it. You've never thought deeply about it, why does it, why do you feel so vehemently objecting the idea of removing such a statue? Like, and people will say, well, it's on principle. And I say, well, there's many things in life that you could argue on principle, but you don't, right? Why is it that this one takes such a prominent stance? And I think that question becomes more interesting to pose to people about the inclination to protect white symbols, colonial symbols, colonial statues, 
that inherent belief that this has to stay, right? That needs to be questioned. And I think that belief is one that that bears a moment of pause from those who are fighting against these symbols to ask themselves, how do you stop that way of thinking? How does society keep reproducing individuals who have no sense of history but are willing to defend the most awful parts of our history at the drop of a dime? So we've spoken very much about posterity, especially how white institutions or the lengths to which white institutions and white supremacy more broadly will go to perpetuate and protect itself. One of the arguments that was made against the removal of the statue at the University of Cape Town was that there was some will or some legal reason why this couldn't happen. And so a question is, how should we deal with instances where the removal of statues could put academic institutions at risk of breaching certain legal obligations? For example, relating to conditions attaching to property conferred under a will. Institutions have this belief that if they change things that they are supposedly contractually ob obligated to uphold, old traditions, old pieces of structure, artwork, etc., etc., that somehow there is how to pay if they do that. And I think what universities need to start pushing more towards is the understanding that as society changes, as the morals of our society change, then they also dictates that the university has to change its approach to old legacies that are underpinned by things that they are supposedly contractually obligated to uphold. So this is the argument that I used to give to UCT for multiple when they said, well, we need to talk to the Heritage Foundation. And I said, well, you can talk to them. But when you enter the discussion, don't enter the discussion from the perspective of you're protecting this, because then you've got it all twisted at that point. You should enter that discussion of what we do with the statue from the perspective of where can we take this? What can we do with it? We know we don't want it on our property anymore because our society dictates that this is not what we want. And obviously, you don't want that always to happen. Society can be dreadfully wrong a lot of the time when it comes to these issues. But I think as a general guiding principle, nothing that is discriminatory, offensive, that reminds people of their non-existence within a planet or within a space should be protected by the rule of law. That's just my general perspective on what the rule of law should be about. We've spoken very much about the futurity of the movement. What would you say constitutes success in the Roads Must Fall movement? How should we define success? In this context? For me, the success of Roads Must Fall is not the activities of the movement itself, right? The day in, day out machinations of this movement. The success of Roads Must Fall is the way that it has changed people's minds from here onwards, right? From the moment that it was created to the moment that it no longer organized within an occupied space, whatever people deem the moment it ended. For me, the success is that you now have a generation of young people in this country and across the world who have the firm belief that the status quo is not sustainable anymore. And that's that's its overwhelming success. You can never take it away, right? Because you've inspired an entire generation of people to think differently about their circumstances and not just think differently, right? We've thought differently for multiple years. 
but to have the belief to say that I will fight for this change, to change the way people view me and to change the status quo that believes that I am other to a space, that I'm less than in a space. And I will be purposely antagonistic to those who want to perpetuate that belief system. And I think that is how you should, if you have to measure, measure the success of the movement. Um, and in that respect, you then start thinking about the movement, not just as people within the room, but the ideologies that it helped create. So we're on the last few questions, and these are really about where to from here. These are questions about transition and transformation. In terms of the removal of statues, what or who should occupy the empty spaces? So I remember, <laughs> so why I'm laughing was I remember I sat on the side of the fence that was like, we need to replace it with something. I was very vehement about it. Um, <laughs> and the original, I think the original idea I had, like the very early stages, I'm really embarrassed to even say it now. I was like, it would just be really, really interesting to have like a statue of either, and each one would say something very different, but you could have a statue of either Nelson Mandela, Robert Sabukwe, or Steve Beagle right next to the Rose statue, or maybe all three of them looking at the Rose statue with like a disapproving look. And I thought that was hilarious at the time. And I look back at it being like, what an awful suggestion to make. Um, I now sit on the side of the fence. I've been convinced to come over to it. Of that, I don't think there's a need to put anything there. Um, I think our desire, and I, I, I flip-flop on this for, for different reasons, but for that particular position at UCT, I don't think anything needs to be there. What I believe is that that space should be remembered as a space in which anyone can project whatever they believe is a symbol that makes them feel welcomed in that space. So that, that would be my argument for that particular spot on that campus, right? That you, you leave it empty as just a reminder. You can put a clock there that says, this used to be where the statue was, I don't really care. But just as a reminder where people can project their own notions of representation in that space. And I think South Africa in particular, I can't speak about the UK, because I, I've never lived there for an extended period of time. I think there's a lack of effort that is put into remembering our culture outside of street names and outside of museums. And I think a more concerted effort has to be made in making sure that the history that was hidden is now no longer hidden in a very active manner in our parks, in our streets. Um, in our courtyards, et cetera, et cetera, and the way that we learn about the history of our country. So you've spoken very much about what you think should happen with the empty space that used to be occupied by the Cecil Rhodes statue at the University of Cape Town. But I wonder, how should we deal with other symbols of the colonial past and the legacies of empire? Society has always come to the conclusion in multiple different ways. I mean, it's extremely subjective, but we've come to the conclusion that history um, that has showcased that it was brutal to those that it deemed an other, it was brutal to those it deemed as less than, it was brutal to those it deemed it had conquered in a particular way, right? People don't like to remember that history. 
in general. Like we, as time has gone on, society has generally shown that kind of tendency. And I think people think colonialism was like a, it was like hundreds of years ago type of thing, right? Like we, <laughs> colonialism only died hundreds, colonialism was like with us until like, the early 90s, right, in certain aspects of the world, right? Like this is, colonialism as its raw form, as a, as, a, as a function of our society over time, is still fairly new, right? And I think our society is now turning the corner on us being able to look at that particular piece of history and saying we need to move away from it. And because of that, I think colonial legacies and iconography of statues or symbols, I think there'll be increasing, there will be an increasing amount of critiques around them and an increasing amount of disdain for those type of symbols. I think our society is naturally moving in that direction. The question then becomes like, what do you do with them? Do you like burn them all? Do you do what the Russians did and you create like a, like a little symmetry for these statues? Um, a funny story is right now the Rhodes Missile, the, the Cecil John Rhodes statue, I'm not sure if you know where it is right now, but it was being bidded on by people across the world. And one of the people who I think almost won the bid, if I'm not mistaken, I don't know where the story last went off, was this Texan billionaire who's made a habit of buying up colonial statues from across the world and puts them in his home. It's a weird Weird fact of life, and he desperately wants the statue, right? What we do with the statue, I think there shouldn't be as much of a preoccupation on it, right? You could do many things with it. It really depends on the context. If a billionaire wants to buy it, let them buy it. If a museum wants to hold it, let the museum hold it, as long as it's not stolen from you in any particular way. I think the bigger belief we should have is that we don't want those symbols in place anymore. And I think that should be the the central aim of any movement that looks at these particular symbols and statues, etc. Perhaps in closing, what are the long-term ambitions of the Roads Must Fall movement? And what do you think its priorities for the near future should be? One of the unwritten aspects of the protests in 1976, so the youth protests in 1976, wasn't just the protest itself, right? It wasn't just that um, the apartheid state shot at individuals, but what it, it as a lot of people say, it, it reignited the fight against apartheid. And for me, the long-term goal of not roads must fall as an organization or as a movement, but the long-term goal of every single person who associates themselves with roads must fall. Right? So it's independent of having a physical structure in place. It's independent of having a particular individual being that rallying call, that freedom fighter, everyone. I think the long-term goal is that every individual should be able to go preach the gospel of Rhodes must fall, if I had to use some biblical terms for it, right? Whether it is to your colleagues within your workplace, whether it is amongst your friends, whether it is to your children in the future, and I think that should be the long-term mechanization of those must fall. Um, and I think if we do that, we don't just succeed, but what we actually end up doing is that you create the foundation for something new to be created. 
Um, and I hope that's the case. And I hope it happens within my youth lifetime, right? not my entire lifetime. I hope before I turn 40 that I can see that firm foundation taking root, at least in South Africa and in Southern Africa as well. But we shall see. Thank you so much for that. I'm actually reminded by a quote from Atinangam Songopo, who is one of the co-facilitators of Roads Must Fall One here in Oxford, and who went on to co-edit the Roads Must Fall book. And she said, we must hope that our actions and the voices we give confidence to will roll over into the next generation so that they will align themselves to a global project of decolonization. I thought that was really poignant and it really made me reflect on how grateful and thankful I am for all of the work of activists like yourself and student organizers like yourself in organizing and demanding and calling attention to this issue of decolonization uh, and really paving the way under very difficult circumstances for students like me to participate in this movement, but also really to, to take it one step further. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. Rights Up is brought to you by the Oxford Human Rights Hub. The executive producer is Kira Alman. This episode was co-produced by Natasha Holcroft-Ems and Sarah Dobby, edited by Christy Calloway-Gale and Kira Alman, and hosted by Simpiwe Laura-Stewart. Music for this series is by Rosemary Alman. Show notes for this episode have been written by Sarah Dobby. Thanks to our production team members, Sandra Fredman, Megan Campbell, Monica Arango-Olaya, and Gary Pillay, for their valuable feedback in putting this episode together. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you like to listen to your favorite podcasts.